0: Welcome to the Edge Dwellers Cafe, an interview-based podcast featuring conversations at the convergence of politics, environment, and mental health in a world on edge. My name is Ben Habib, and I'm an international relations scholar, an environmentalist, permaculture practitioner, and neurodivergent coffee drinker. Join me in my quest to explore the edges that define us, divide us, and shape how we interact with each other as we grapple with the extraordinary changes taking place across our world. Order a hot beverage and get comfortable, this is the Edge Dwellers Café. Greetings Edge Dwellers. I'm extremely lucky to be surrounded by a number of extraordinary people in my professional orbit. And one of those people is Hae-In Ellen Cho. hae is a PhD candidate at Monash University, with research interests in the Korean diaspora in Australia, domestic and family violence, and North Korean migration. Prior to commencing her PhD studies, she worked as a project manager in the Cultural and Economic Affairs section at the Consulate General of the Republic of Korea in Melbourne. In this discussion, Hei in and I explore her research into the lived experience of domestic and family violence in the South Korean-Australian diasporic community, and her associated public outreach work based on this project, a creative arts video series called The Story of Ari. As I record this, it's the UN's International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, And in 2021, we've also seen the incredible advocacy work of Grace Tame, Australian of the Year and Survivor Advocate, as well as Brittany Higgins, Gemma Carey, and many, many others in taking a stand against the culture of violence against women in Australian society. So a content warning, this episode wades into this terrain and may be sensitive to some listeners. Hayden's work is about amplifying and mainstreaming the voices of domestic and family violence survivors and particularly those from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Later in the episode, we explore Hayen's previous research into the vulnerabilities of female refugees from North Korea who flee into China. We also get into Hayen's experiences as an international student studying in Australia, about postgraduate study during the COVID pandemic, and Hayen's dual identities as both Heian and Ellen, along with the current state of Australia, Korea, people-to-people relations. But first, a quick call to action. You can support the podcast by clicking on the like or subscribe buttons on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also help support the production of the podcast by making a one-off monetary contribution of any amount via the PayPal link on the website. See the show notes for details. But now, let's get into my conversation with Heyin in Ellen Cho. Edge Dwellers Café. Hey, and welcome to the Edge Dwellers Café podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Let's start with your PhD research on the lived experience of domestic and family violence among the South Korean diaspora communities in Australia.
1: My PhD project examines factors that prevent Korean victim survivors from seeking help, as well as well as how effectively the Australian institutions and Korean-Australian community respond to victim survivors when they do seek help.
0: You take an intersectional approach to Mm -hmm. exploring this topic. Perhaps we should start with an explanation of how you employ intersectionality in this research.
1: The term intersectionality was coined in 1989 by African-American professor Kimberly Crenshaw to describe how race, class, gender and other individual characteristics intersect with one another. In simple terms, intersectionality is the acknowledgement that everyone has their own unique experience of discrimination and oppression. And we must consider anything and everything that can marginalize people, whether it's gender, race, class, sexual orientation, physical ability, and so on. So I thought intersectionality could be applied to examine the issues of domestic and family violence in the Korean-Australian context, because although domestic and family violence is clearly a gendered issue, It isn't just based on their gender. I see domestic and family balance also as a human rights issue and it is also a major health and welfare issue in Australia.
0: The key insight of intersectional theory is that every person's experience is unique depending on this this mix of different factors and influences and identity markers in their life.
1: That's right, yeah.
0: And I know students sometimes, when they first exposed to this theory, if they haven't come across it before, they find it confusing. Is it about privilege? Is it about discrimination? I know this is something that's come up in some of my undergraduate classes recently.
1: It's a bit of both, isn't it? What what do you think about this, Ben? What what, what, what was their question about?
0: Yeah, this came up in the context of a third-year undergraduate student who had... Learned about intersectionality in a psychology subject previously,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: but it had been discussed in relation to privilege. So I guess it depends on who's giving the discussion, what the context of the discussion is, and who the audience is. When it's discussed in terms of privilege, it's okay. What what advantages do I have vis-a-vis other people?
1: Yeah.
0: Whereas if you're talking of another audience, it's okay. What discriminations or disadvantages am I experiencing? As a result of where I sit in in relation to all of these different intersecting power relationships, mm-hmm. so the way the concept is framed can lead to radically different perspectives. I think
1: that's true. Yeah, I um, recall my conversation with my main supervisor, who's um, who's an American scholar. Um, she's obviously a Monash at the moment, but she talked about the the different power dynamic. Like, she's white, so at times she feels very privileged, but, you know, also she's women. So if she works on the street, you know, she feels like, you know, she feels unprivileged in some way. Looking at these domestic and family violence issues, uh, I'm using intersectionality for in a way that, you know, one can be privileged in a way, but unprivileged in other ways.
0: And it provides a very high resolution picture of the human experience, doesn't it? Which is really important because your project is all about mainstreaming survivor voices. Can you say a little bit more about the specifics of the project, how you bring survivor voices to the fore, and what are some of the key findings that you've come up with so far through this research?
1: Yeah, so when I conduct literature review in my first year of PhD, I noticed that most of existing literature focus on surveys or interviews through the service providers i feel like i didn't really get to hear about hear the voices of victim survivors cuz they are the people who have the lived experience right so that's why I decided to conduct field work and, you know, go and meet those victim survivors within the Korean diaspora community. The reason why I refer to the Korean Australian community as Korean diaspora communities is that often when we think about Korean Australian community, we exclude those people who are on short term migration scheme, like um, migrants and also international students as well. We have lots of international students. And so I met about 16 Korean victim survivors who have experienced domestic and family violence in Australia. I met them a couple of times. You know, we had really good conversation. Always the interview, I um, told them that You know, the interview will only take about, you know, 45 minutes, but then it went over like it was like three to four hours. And we met on the next day and we talked about our migrant experience. I don't have lived experience of domestic and family violence, but then I do have migrant experience in Australia. So we had lots of things in common. I learned a lot from them. And I noticed that how the sector workers view domestic violence is somehow different to what victim-survivors' actually feel about. So those people who I met, many of them were really... When we, th- when we think about victim-survivors, not always, but we often portray them as a passive victim who doesn't know the system, who doesn't speak good English, um, who doesn't work. But that was not true. These people were really amazing people who were edu- highly educated who spoke really good English also had the agency to actually navigate the whole process. So that was something that I found out. And through my research, I tried to argue that we need to really mainstream the voices of victim survivors. One of the core messages from my work is that we need to have our society and laws listen to the voices of victim survivors because victim survivors were given little platform or voice in both policy and practice. And I believe this reflects an ongoing neglect of victim survivors in the decision-making process. Often you don't hear from those who are from culturally and linguistically diverse community in particular. Grace Tain was also prohibited from telling her story which means that our society and law, again, have silenced victim survivors. I strongly believe that we need to build a society where victim survivors of any types of violence, regardless their gender, class, or ethnicity, can speak without fear. As a researcher, I believe my role is to amplify victim survivors' voices and show their strengths to the wider Australian society. Each community and culture is unique, and they differ from one another. My work tells the stories of Korean victim survivors that may or may not differ from other stories of women in Australia. There are other wonderful researchers who are working on it with other communities. I do have colleagues who is looking at the stories of Indian community, indigenous Australian community, and LGBTIQA plus communities. I believe the core message through our work is that every single person has a right to be safe and nobody deserves violence.
0: You're talking about a difference here between what the survivors themselves are telling you and the kind of information that's coming out from the service organisations that are there to help them. So what kind of issues are explaining this discrepancy?
1: Yeah, so um, the sector workers normally um, place emphasis on the culture, but then victim survivors were telling me that I did seek support, but then I was turned away from the service organizations. So they were like, it looks like a rainbow. I don't know whether it's a Korean tongue, but they were like, you know, when you look at the service organize, uh, organization's pamphlets or like a flyers, it looks like they can do everything for victim survivors if they leave immediately. But when they actually go and seek help, they said that there is limited support available for victim survivors, and they feel they actually uh, feel like they were turned away, and you know they feel hurt again.
0: Is there any indication that the service organisations are operating on shoestring budgets, and and that resource constraints might be a part of that, or are there intercultural competency issues that are at play?
1: Yeah, I think that most of um, service workers. I feel like we need more cultural training in service organizations. But also they work like they work really hard. Like there's limited support, like limited funding from the government. I mean, there's more after COVID, which is really good, but there's so much work. There's so much work to do. Um, and there is the tendency where sector see the like a whole community as just one. How do you say this? Um non, non-mainstream community? Like you know, each community has their own uniqueness, right? Um, but we kind of divide this into mainstream women and non-mainstream women, so non court and court community together. So for example, migrant community, I normally argue that each migrant community is so different, right? But there's only one stream for services which targets migrants and refugee women. And refugee women obviously, you know, comes with different migrant journeys, they uh, might need um, different resources and different needs. So I think we really need to work more on that.
0: What are the unique issues that are confronting women from the Korean diaspora community?
1: I didn't really see much issues that's specific to Korean community, if that makes sense. I see a lot, I saw a lot of migrant issues, which other migrant women can also experience. But for Korean community, um, because we, you know, we Korea is one of the community groups uh, which have working holiday visa holders. Right, so it's only like a six countries in together that's got the working holiday visa, and often those working holiday visa holders come here to you know have holiday and work working experience, and then they meet someone here and they marry someone, and then um, they experience domestic violence in some cases. So that's something that we really need to pay attention to, because these working holiday visa holders don't have permanent residency here and they have limited support from the Australian institutions.
0: So the visa status is a big issue, isn't it? Because yeah. you've got limited access to services, limited rights, and possibly have the visa revoked in some sense. That's true. Manner.
1: That's true, yeah. So visa is a big issue because if they have children, that means that that if they want to leave their perpetrator, their partner, they can't really take their children back to Korea or they can't really go get to um, stay in Australia either because they don't have permanent residency here. So domestic violence, I think, I can't remember the exact name, but um, domestic violence permanent residency scheme is available, but it's only available for those who are on the partner visa.
0: So you did field work speaking with survivors in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, and Adelaide.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Now, I know from previous conversations that we've had that the Korean diasporic community is predominantly located in Sydney and Brisbane. That's where the biggest concentrations of Koreans are, less Mm -hmm. so in Melbourne and Perth and Adelaide. Did you notice any different patterns across the survivor testimonies depending on which Australian cities that they were living in?
1: No, that's actually a really interesting question. No, I didn't notice different patterns actually. For people who were in Sydney, they obviously have more access to bilingual workers, less so in Melbourne and Brisbane, but their experience were quite similar.
0: Speaking of patterns, South Korea is going through its Me Too movement over the last couple of years. Have you noticed any patterns in the survivor testimony from people here in Australia versus... Some of the things that that are described by survivors in South Korea.
1: I haven't spoken to the Me Too movement activists in Korea, but in here, what they were saying was they didn't really know, they knew what the domestic and family violence was, but they didn't really see their cases as domestic and family violence. Also, they argued that there needs to be more um, campaign and training for the Korean community because most of uh, my informants, what they were experiencing was domestic violence when they met the service worker, like um, social workers.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question to unpack is why didn't they recognize that kind of abuse as abuse?
1: Because when you when we think about domestic and family violence, we are all you know, we always think about physical violence, right? But domestic and family violence includes other types of violence as well, for example, emotional, financial abuse, and all verbal abuse and all other um types of non-physical violence. It's so when you're in that situation, it's really hard to see a clear picture of what you're going through, and I can really relate to that. Um, I can understand that. The communities um, respond to domestic and family violence is really important.
0: So in your field work and in the research interviews you're doing, you're asking the survivors to step into a really vulnerable space to disclose their experiences and the traumatic things that they've been to. What kind of things did you have to do in order to create that safe space for them to step into?
1: I spend lots of time to build a trust relationship with victim survivors. Obviously, you know, as a researcher, you have to go through ethics approval, and you also have to think about all the um, everything that to uh, minimize risk to interview participants. But then uh, what I did was that I introduced who I am. So instead of saying that I'm a researcher from Monash University exploring the issues of domestic and family violence, I told them I was born and raised in Cheonan, South Korea. And then I came to Australia at the age of 18. And ever since that, you know, I've worked and studied in Australia and then... You know, how I got to do this research in the, in the first maybe 10 to 15 minutes of the interview, I asked them to just ask me questions, ask me anything, really, um, so we can get to know each other. What, I, um, what I'm really thankful about them is that after each interview, because, you know, I'm probably younger than them, more, younger than most of them. And some of them gave me, brought me some panchan, the Korean side dish. Um, cause they know that they, I'm doing field work in Sydney and Brisbane on my own. So that was really nice. And, you know, some people, you know, if we meet again, they get me some bread and, you know, food and it was really nice. Yeah. And I do keep in touch with, with some of them as well. I try not to bother them a lot because I don't, you know, obviously you have to have the boundaries with your interview participants. But at the same time, if anyone contacts me and, you know, updates me with their, you know, their children or anything like that, I do keep in touch with them. It's really nice.
0: As a side project to your PhD research, you've started doing a really interesting digital collaboration with Junbin Lee called The Story of Ari. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so this project, I would say came out of nowhere really. Um, so June and I did a domestic and family balance leadership program together. So he's a filmmaker. So we called up for a coffee and I talked about, he asked me about my research and I I told him that, you know, I don't I'm not quite sure how I can give it back to the community um, as a researcher. Because obviously when you do your research, you get it published. Um, In journal articles or as a scholarly monograph, but I felt like I received so much from the community and I felt like I should give it back to the community and I wasn't quite sure how I should do this. And then um, June said that, you know, if you want your project to be transformed in a creative arts format, and I didn't quite understand what creative arts format he was referring to, but... He said, you know, contact me, and uh, we actually put an application together for Creative Victoria, and we got the funding to actually turn one of the story into a three-part video series. So that's how we started.
0: Yeah, so these three parts. The first part is an animation that explores Ari's migration journey to Australia. Mm -hmm. The second part is about Ari's lived experience of family violence, which is presented in a music video format. And then the final part is a dance video about Ari navigating her post-crisis journey. So this is three different performance mediums to capture each phase of this journey.
1: So the reason why we wanted to divide into three parts video series was that obviously Ari was not always victim survivor of domestic violence, right? She had her happy childhood and she when she decided to leave relationship, she obviously had another phrase that she had to face. She had to navigate the post-DFB crisis. Yeah, I don't know how we got to decide we will go with the animation for the first part and music video for the second part. I think that was June's decision to do that because he's the creative artist. We wanted to kind of show a broad picture of Ari's uh, migration journey to Australia as well as domestic and family violence experience as well.
0: One excellent aspect of this project is that all of the collaborators involved, the filmmakers and the dancers and the actors, everyone involved in this process gets to or has been asked to complete family violence training. So this seems like a great way to have some additional tangible impact of the project by you know, increasing the capacities of all of the people involved?
1: Yeah, so um, we catch up every two weeks. You know, Obviously, we are in lockdown situation now. So we catch up um, on June. We did meet and attend um, domestic violence training. And why don't we get other collaborators to um, attend this training and get to know more about um, domestic and family violence issues? Obviously, they get to pay to attend those meetings. So, sorry, trainings. Because it's really important for a dancer or actors to have, you know, they obviously can imagine what happened to Ari, but if they know a little more about domestic and family violence, they might help them how to portray um Ari as well. And also, you know, they are our community members. Those dancers and actors are our community members. We thought that, you know, we kind of have responsibility to provide right information, right training for our community members as well.
0: Adds a level of authenticity to the art as well as building capacity and giving back to the community itself. That's a fantastic contribution.
1: We're going to have a pre-screening session in December and we will also present our work at Stop Domestic Violence Conference in December, which will be held in Gold Coast. I don't think we'll be able to travel to go across, but we'll probably present online. What we're going to do is we we'll have this discussion session where we can receive feedback from sector workers, academics, and also um, from victim survivors to ensure that the story is really clear and accurate and also culturally and linguistically appropriate.
0: So I'm interested in your previous research on non-traditional security issues in North Korea. I think we were both influenced by Park Kyung-e's book of that name back from 2013, which really put non-traditional security on the map in relation to North Korea studies. So I remember your master's thesis, you were researching human trafficking issues in North Korean defectors in China. So can you speak to that research?
1: Yeah, um, so for my master's thesis, I examined the human trafficking issues of North Korean defectors in China. Obviously, now that I moved to a slightly different area of research, but then I still believe that my passion and my interest about Korean diaspora is still there. Because, you know, when we talk about Korean diaspora, Korean migration studies, we always refer to South Koreans. but. I'm still very interested in um, North Korean migration, um, North Korean defection, and all those kind of issues. So my research still focused, carried on, and still um, focus on marginalized groups within the Korean diaspora community. So for my master thesis, I argued that when we look at the human trafficking issues of North Korea, we need to put a non-traditional security lens to see the issues. Often the discussion around North Korea is about security, the traditional security, nuclear weapon, um, Kim Jong Un. So it's very we wear um traditional lens a lot to examine the issues within North Korea. But I wanted to kind of shift the the focus to non-traditional security issues, you know, looking at the lives of marginalized groups in um, North Korea, you know, looking at the lived experience of North Korean defectors in China or in South Korea. That's what I wanted to do with my master's degree.
0: There's some really important issues to tease out from this work, isn't there? So you're looking at the Ministry of Unification Statistics, By gender, it's overwhelmingly women that make it out Mm -hmm. as defectors and arrive in South Korea. So what are some of the reasons behind that and what are some of the challenges that North Korean women face in that journey from escaping North Korea and then trying to get into China and perhaps make it all the way out to South Korea?
1: Normally, North Korean men serve in the military for ten years, right? So it's um, it's usually women in North Korea who needs to look after their families. So they um, choose to go overseas, obviously illegally. They choose to go China or um, third country to on um, money so they can look after their family. But also, when you are overseas. I would say it's easier for women to get some jobs, although they don't have um, residency there. That's another uh, reason why there are overwhelmingly more female defectors in China and South Korea. And also, obviously, gender inequality plays out in this this area too.
0: These women are in a a vulnerable position. Once they cross into China, getting out, is really difficult and they're in a position where they're not like they don't have any rights as illegal migrants
1: yeah so China, the Chinese government see North Korean defectors not as refugee or migrants they see them as illegal migrants and then they send them back to North Korea yeah so the tongue you describe is right
0: which puts them at a real disadvantage hopefully they have the support of organisations that can help to get them out. Yeah. But if they don't have those kind of connections, what kind of discriminations or vulnerabilities are these women facing while they're in China?
1: So they obviously um, don't have the work rights. Even though they were involved in trafficking or any other illegal activities, their rights are not um, protected. For example, some of them work for Chinese or um, Chinese-Korean companies, but they don't get paid. And they also don't have access to legal, medical, and all other um, support in China. But what I'm hoping to do is actually uh, do more interviews with North Korean female defectors um, after I finish my PhD,
0: how many North Korean defectors end up making it to Australia?
1: Oh, that's a really good question because we don't, I actually don't remember the actual um, number, but Australian government stopped receiving North Korean refugees. I think it's been more than 10 years now.
0: My understanding was that the Australian government wouldn't accept them as refugees because they do have a country to go to that accepts them being South Korea because of that guaranteed right of citizenship.
1: That's right, so,
0: that's right. So they don't enter the UNHCR pipeline.
1: Hmm. But I don't know how many we've got in Australia. Yeah. I've never yeah. actually met anyone here. But I do know that um, there are uh, North Korean YouTubers in Australia. It's, it's a much, it's much, much smaller yeah.
0: portion of the Korean community.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And compared to the UK, um, North Korean community in the UK and Canada, it's really small.
0: What was it like starting out your undergraduate studies as a newly arrived international student?
1: I was basically new to the country and had no friends or family who could tell me about the Australian academic system. So the key challenge was to adapt to the new environment and system. It was not an easy journey as it's typical for international relations tutorials. Uh, We had lots of presentation and discussions. And in my first year, I barely understood or followed the discussions with my tutor and peer students. I think I was the only one of two international students on our course at the time. And the other international student who came from Japan spoke really good English because she had spent her childhood in the States. And um, this might surprise some of your audience. I was at university when assignments were still submitted on paper. I think I did submit assignments online when I did master's or maybe in my final year of undergraduate. But I remember going to the faculty building to submit my assignment into the pigeon hole. So what I did was... I bought a voice recorder and recorded every single lecture. And after I finished for the day, I came home and then I listened to it again and then transcribed it to text. So these days you have a really, um, you have good software programs where you just upload your file and it gives you a transcription Um, in a couple of minutes or hours, I didn't have the luxury of it. Um, So it was really time consuming, but that was the only way I could understand the whole lecture and prepare for my assignments and exams as well. So um, the good thing about this was that it provided perfect notes for my final exams in the first year, but I don't think we had many gems in the final year and I do still have those notes and I'm happy to show you next time when I see you Ben.
0: I guess writing in a second language is really difficult right?
1: Writing your thesis in English is really painful. It never gets easy and I have to admit that I still struggle a lot with it today. It's really frustrating because many times I end up writing a couple of unfinished sentences that I know do not make sense at all. But I realized something while teaching Korean language at Monash University. As you know, I teach Korean language at Monash. I have an additional bachelor's degree in teaching Korean as an additional language. Looking at my students' work, I'm always amused by how good their Korean language skills are. But when I talk to my students, they tell me that they feel they are not proficient enough to do X and Y. Looking at these talented students, I see myself in them. Because when I'm writing my paper or preparing for my um, academic presentation, I feel incompetent. Often I think to myself, You have lived in Australia for 10 years now. You should have better English language proficiency. But now I prescript to the idea that good enough is good enough and that I have to be kind to myself. One of my strategies was, and still is, to get extra support. I always get my work edited by a professional editor because. When I send my paper to academics or other colleagues who work in my field, I want to receive feedback on my argument, not on my grammatical mistakes, which shift the focus away from the actual contents of my writing. I also get help from the writing studio at Monash, where the learning and skills advisor provides you with feedback on your writing, There are wonderful programs that international students often do not know about. As an international undergraduate student, I knew all those services, but I've never really used it. I don't think I had the courage to actually go and ask for assistance. I would encourage every single international student to maximize their use of these services Because now that I've used it, I find it really beneficial and useful.
0: So 2018, you start your PhD journey. And then 2020, the COVID pandemic strikes. A terrible time to be doing a higher degree candidature because of all of the restrictions and all of the added stresses that everyone's had to go through. What has it been like for you to be trying to complete your PhD work under these circumstances?
1: When we went into the first lockdown, I think I was doing fine because I just completed field work. It was it was a write up time for me, but then you know it went on. So we're in the we're in the sixth lockdown now. Is it right?
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. And then I started finding it really a bit hard because of the uncertainty we have right now and I haven't seen my family back in South Korea for almost two years now so I was finding the first one and then in the second one I was sitting here I was I thought to myself you know Ben you know I have been in Melbourne for long enough right and I have a wonderful wonderful support network including you obviously but it was still difficult And I thought about other international students who just started their PhD, because I knew that they were starting their PhD, but I never got to see them. So I decided to really approach other HDR students um, who I met through my PhD. Obviously, I was only able to attend one or two conferences. I was actually, I would say I was lucky enough to attend face-to-face conference uh, in my PhD candidature. And then we um, organise a catch-up on Zoom as well.
0: And the PhD journey is a solitary one at the best of times. But during COVID and during the lockdowns, it's really isolating. Mm -hmm. So I know you've described the the importance of your supervisors in uh, keeping you on an even keel here. Do you want to speak about your supervisory relationships and and what role that's played in getting you through this?
1: Yeah, so I'm really grateful to have my supervisors Professor Caroline Stevens and Associate Professor Andrew Jackson, who checked in with me every two to three days. We just had like a normal conversation outside of this obituary meeting, which I have every two weeks. But, you know, just talking to them on the phone made me feel really um, relaxed. And, you know, we didn't talk about my research. We talked about, you know, life and I got to know more about my supervisors as well on a personal level, obviously, and what it was like for them when they were um doing their PhD. So
0: sort of, it's a more of a colleague-colleague relationship when you get to the PhD level, and that the kind of relationship that you're describing there is uh, is the dream in terms of having great supervision and feeling mm-hmm. supported.
1: Yeah, I met good university friends and mentors. I'm still in touch with David Hunt, the associate professor, David Hunt. Um, he's still my go-to person if I have any concerns about my career. And if I could pick one educator who has influenced how I treat my students now, it would be um, Amy Natalie, Dr. Amy Natalie, who was then a PhD candidate. Um, I attended her Australian politics tutorials and I could not understand what PM was. I didn't know it was short for prime minister. I had no idea. So I couldn't follow any of the conversation in class. After a few classes, I think I went to Amy and asked what it meant as, um, you know, I did not have courage to ask what PM stood for in class. Amy immediately apologized to me, although she didn't have to, she didn't have to apologize to me, but she did. And then she sent me her notes, what I believe was her weekly lesson plan prior to the tutorial. So I know exactly what we would be discussing and um, and could prepare for the classes. It meant a lot to me. And now that I have become a session a tutor and a PhD candidate for myself, I feel more grateful to her. Although I don't think I had a chance to thank her personally. Maybe I should send this episode to her. Now I understand how busy Amy must have been as a PhD candidate juggling multiple work commitments, it makes me feel even more grateful for her kindness. And to um, answer your last question about what the process was like and how I helped myself to adapt to a new life in Australia, I hired a private tutor who mentored me on how to write an English essay. And also, how to formulate my arguments and how to make a reference list. Last week, I do still keep in touch with her. We're good friends now. Um, last week, I spoke to her and I told her that I'll not be where I am today without her. And then all of a sudden, she cried and said to me that it was such a pleasure to have made a small impact on my life because she saw my struggles. But really, um, she made a big impact on my life. I would have really struggled if I wasn't surrounded by these wonderful people that I have met in Australia. The Edge Dwellers Cafe.
0: So, second lockdown, you're feeling a little bit isolated. This is when you decide to start this. HDR, an early career researcher support group within the Korean studies community?
1: So it was, I think, December last year, so December 2020. I co founded a Korean studies HDR ECR support group. So HDR, obviously, higher degree research students and early career researchers support group. So we just I spoke with my colleagues, two colleagues, Dylan from Victoria University of Wellington um, and Shona from Monash University. We just talked about, you know, how difficult it is for PhD PhD students and we thought that maybe we should organise a Zoom meeting and, you know, talk about how we're doing, just checking in ourselves. We communicated it through Korean Studies Association of Australia. 13 Korean Studies HDR students showed up for the first meeting in December 2020. And we thought it was just going to be us, three of us, really turning up. But then we had 13 students turning up. We didn't know who they were, but they just turned up. So... And I noticed that just five minutes before we started our session. And I remember me and Dylan and Shona were like, what are we going to say now? Like, do we have to have an opening or something? Do we have to have a topic to discuss? It was a really um, powerful session that, you know, all of us, because we we didn't know, we didn't even know that we had that many Korean studies, HDI students in Australia and New Zealand. It was really good. We formed a really good um, connection, something that I believe it's something that can only happen during when you're PhD students, right? Like when you finish your PhD and then um, go into academia, they are your colleagues. They, I don't know, I don't know, Ben, I, what, what do you think about this? Like, you know, you have, you have a different kind of relationship. But if you meet people while during your PhD, they are your friends. They are more than colleagues.
0: Yeah, you have a bond because you're going through the same experiences at the same time and you've got something to relate to. And you're not yet made jaded by all the institutional bullshit of higher
1: education (laughs) or
0: you you don't get subsumed into the the personality wars or the, the institutional politics. That's right. Uh, That end up sucking you in when you get into academia proper.
1: Yeah. Even like for a postdoc position, you know, you'll be competing each other, right? I mean, after you finish your PhD. But while you're doing PhD, I think, like you said, we have a special bond together.
0: Yeah, that's right. No, there was a number of people through my PhD journey that I connected with at the time. And I don't see them often or or get in touch with them often, but there's definitely a bond there.
1: Yeah, so we ended up having monthly sessions. We've had, I think, 10 sessions so far. We meet every first Wednesday of each month. There is no readership or anything like that. We just take turns in facilitating the seminars. The main reason is because we want all the HDR students and all the career researchers to have the opportunity to host seminars. If they have experience now, I mean, that's better, right? When they become a researcher or academia or if they choose to work in industry, this experience will carry on.
0: Yeah, it's a safe place for developing those kinds of professional skills.
1: Yeah, and we don't judge them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm all for that. That's a a great way to develop facilitation skills because it's hard if you don't have experience doing that Mm. kind of thing. Yeah. Now, when you're first thrown in the fire, when you have to do that later on, it's a really daunting experience. So I think this yeah. is a great initiative.
1: Even before the KSA conference, we will probably meet together and we'll do a mock interview and more conference.
0: Fantastic. And if there's any uh, any way that I can help out with the group, as well don't hesitate to ask.
1: Yeah, we would love to have you. We actually have you on the list, Ben. <laughs> <laughs>
0: invitation coming. The I invitation, saw the one yeah. coming up. Yeah. Uh, that looked really cool. Mm.
1: What we want to do, sorry, if I can um, speak a little bit more about the support group, uh, what we're going to do next year is that we, we're trying to reach out to um, early career researchers as well because now that the majority of our members are HDR students, but we know that, You know, some of us are graduating soon as well. Um, but also we know that there are other ECIs who are pretty much isolated in their own institution because they might be the only one who works on Korea. And there are also ECIs who are not affiliated with institutions and they are carving speaking and networking opportunities right now. So. Uh, Yeah, we will try to reach out to those um, early career researchers and, you know, have them opportunity to speak and present their work as well.
0: Yeah, this kind of collective support for HDRs and ECRs is really important. Academia is such a hostile place at the moment and Mm -hmm. any kind of sort of mutual aid of this kind is really beneficial. It's really important. So hats off to you and your collaborators on setting this up. Thank you. How would you assess the career-related expertise in Australia? And perhaps to to preface this question, you've been here now for a long time as a student. You've worked in the the Republic of Korea Diplomatic Corps. So you've been in a few different roles and you've got to interact with all different elements of the, the community in Melbourne, from higher education, business sector, cultural sector, what is the level of cross-cultural competency, and particularly as it relates to Korea, that you've seen through these multiple roles and multiple interactions?
1: I think, in terms of the Korea, um, Korea Australia, Australia Korea relations, I believe that the australian and Korean relationship is stronger than it has ever been. Really, we know that the you know we know the importance of our bilateral relationship. So I think we had enough discussion now and we probably have to think about what action we need to take next because I often feel like the conversation ends with the um, emphasis on the importance of bilateral relationship, but that's not what we want, right? We want, you know, to move to the next, next step. In my role as a project manager at the Korean Consulate General, I um, try to put emphasis on people-to-people links and relationship building. And I think now that that's part of um, Australia's public policy as well. But sometimes I felt like the focus is on business and trades, but we need to think further than that. Which areas do we need to further work on and how can we as an individual or as a community together um, further strengthen our international um, relationship?
0: Yeah, and that question gets to an issue that is always a political football in Australian politics, certainly over the last 30 years when we talk about Australia's engagement with its Asian neighbours. And part of that is cross-cultural competency. What does cross-cultural competency mean to you?
1: Hmm. I, I would say cross-cultural competency is the ability, but also actually willingness, your willingness to understand people from different cultures and also your willingness or ability to engage with them effectively. I don't know if Korea is engaging with Australia effectively, or vice versa. I don't know whether Australia is engaging with Korea effectively. What do you think about this, Ben?
0: Well, Korea always seems to come a distant third to China and Japan in terms Mm. of the the Asian cultural imagination in Australia. And I'm not sure why. Perhaps it's because both of those countries, like the the people-to-people and government-to-government and business-to-business interactions have been larger earlier with China and Japan than with Korea, who, you know, the explosion of the Korean economy has come a little bit later and with it, the business and economic relationships with Australia that have expanded. This is such a live question. It's an existential question for Australian culture. What's our relationship with the region that we're in?
1: Mm.
0: This cultural discussion, it's part of the culture wars in Australian politics. It tos and froes depending on who's in power. Yeah. The Gillard Report into Australian Engagement with Asia. Yeah. You know, that report was all about charting a course for increasing Australian engagement with our Asian neighbours. But then when the Conservative parties are in power, then they tend to be a little bit more isolationist and that commitment wanes and... So It's like a sine wave, this waxes and wanes, depending on the state of domestic politics here in Australia. Mm -hmm. But it also signposts this difference. It's like there's two different Australians. There's the old colonial white conservative Australia and then there's the new multicultural cosmopolitan diverse Australia. Mm
1: -hmm. And they
0: exist in parallel. The cosmopolitan vision of Australia is reflective of the actual mix of diversity in Australian society. And mm. the old vision is more embodied in the institutional makeup of Australia. So there's always this tension between these, these two Australians. This question about cross-cultural competency, this question about Australia career relations is always nested in the politics of this issue. Mm. Is that something you've noticed?
1: Yes, yeah. But, like, I, feel, I also feel like if you look at the community level, we feel like we don't really know each other. I don't know if that makes sense. Like Korea doesn't really know much about Australia. Australia doesn't really know much about Korea. What we really need to do, like you said, you know, it depends on it's all it's all political. We really need to focus on people to people links, really. Now that we have greater Australian community in Korea who can probably act as a what do you call the ambassadors to Australia? And also we have We now have second generation of Korean Australians um, living in all different parts of Australia. So,
0: What we have had in the last 10 to 15 years is the Hallyu-Korean wave, this massive cultural explosion which has found its way into the the popular consciousness of culture in Australia as well. Mm. So how have you seen the impact of Korean culture as it's had on particularly young people in Australia?
1: Yeah, I'm really surprised. We at Monash, uh, we have about thousand students majoring in Korean, Korean studies. So it's not just about language, but, it's, but um, it's also it also includes the Korean culture, history, and you know all other social aspects of Korea. It's really um interesting. But the thing is, that I don't know if I'm being too skeptical here, but once they graduate with Korean major, they really have nowhere to go in terms of, you know, career, like in terms of job market. But at the same time, the businesses are saying that we need someone who understands Korean culture and Korean language, and we don't have anyone who can fill in that position. So that's something we really need to work on, I think. At Monash, we try to um, provide as many internship or placement opportunities with Korean companies or Korean Australian companies, you know we can probably do more about that um, in the next five years.
0: Now, there's something I'd love for us to explore that we talked about a little bit earlier off air: the two separate or parallel identities that you carry as someone who generally rolls with uh, English language names. So I know you as Ellen, as do mm-hmm. most people, but then you've also got your Korean name, Haye. What's the interplay between having these two names and identities? How does it come about and what's its, what's its purpose and role while you're here in Australia?
1: It's really interesting because I've been using my English name, Ellen, for about 20 years now. So that's me too. Ellen's, Ellen is me and Hane is me too. But now that i moved into Korean studies, um, people started calling me Hane more so i'm kind of having an identity crisis here like if someone asks me you know how can i address you then i'm like oh i don't mind any really but they're like oh you tell me you you know did you want me to go by your korean name because that's your you know that's actually that's your actual name real name i don't mind you calling me ellen or Hane. But it's just that uh, it's something I feel like should I abandon my career, uh, sorry, English name now? I'm having this identity crisis.
0: Yeah, well, it doesn't bother me. I, it's totally up to you. What you yourself, <laughs> and I will gladly, gladly follow your lead. But the adoption of an English name, correct me if I'm wrong, that's something that you do when you're learning English in school. Is that right? I
1: think so, yeah. I can't remember when I started using this English name. But I'm pretty sure it was given to me by the English teacher in school.
0: So you didn't choose it yourself?
1: No, I didn't choose it, but I like it because, you know, it's just part of me now. Um, I wanted to add my English name as my middle name to my passport and the Ministry of South Korean Ministry of Foreign Affairs said no. They rejected it.
0: Is, is that purely a cultural thing, because there are no middle names in Korea, or what was the thinking there? What was the it? I, I think
1: part of it is cultural aspects, but also because I have too many records on my too many records, international travel records, they said they would probably become legal issues as well.
0: Let's talk briefly about your experience working with the ROK Diplomatic Corps. This is the context in which we met.
1: That's right, yeah. I worked in Korean Consulate General in Melbourne for about, I think four and a half years from 2014 to 2018. So I was, I finished my bachelor in Australia and I was a locally hired staff member there. Um, the beauty of being a locally hired staff member is that you don't really have to move to another country after two and three years in the post. So that means that you get to really know this particular country and become a specialist in, in the country that you work in. Also, this means that I got to build a wider network within, you know, stakeholders. You know, I met you through my work as well. And I always met new people, like, almost every day. And I really enjoyed working at the Korean country because like, um, as a... As an international studies student, I did BA in international studies. This is something that like, you get practical experience in diplomatic sector. And it was really interesting. But it was really challenging as well because we only had about, I think now they have 12 staff members, including two diplomats from Korea. But then when I was there, we only had about seven to eight staff members looking after Victoria and we did lots of events, uh research seminars, you know, lots of delegations from South Korea as well. So it was very um fast paced working environment. But then I really enjoyed it. I was lucky in a sense because you know, these days, you don't really get to work in the industry that you're, you hope to work in as a university student. But I did Bachelor in International Studies, and then I worked in the um, diplomatic sector for four and a half years. So that was really, um, I was really lucky in that sense.
0: All right. Hey, and Joe, thank you so much for joining us on the Edge Dwellers Cafe.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Edge Dwellers Cafe. A huge thanks and appreciation to Hayen for a wonderful discussion. What I love about Hayen's perspective is her unique combination of professional, scholarly and personal experience, which I value as a colleague, and I hope stood out for you as well as you're listening to the discussion. I'd also like to share that Hayen has delivered a number of guest lectures for my undergraduate subject, Contemporary Politics of Northeast Asia at Latrobe University and help to facilitate engagements with my students with the South Korean Consul General. She's definitely a well-known and respected figure within the Korean studies community here in Victoria. Please do support hae important work on domestic and family violence by following her on Twitter and LinkedIn, and also check out the website for the Story of Ari Project, which will be live from December the 3rd. See the show notes for links. A reminder that if you'd like to support the Edge Dwellers Cafe podcast, please click on the like and subscribe buttons on whatever platform you're listening on and leave a review as well. You can materially support the Edge Dwellers Cafe with a one-off PayPal contribution. Your financial support helps to cover the costs of hosting, producing, editing and researching the podcast and is very much appreciated. The Edge Dwellers Cafe Patreon page is offline for a while while I renovate it, but stay tuned for updates for when that's up and running. Thanks for joining me, this is Ben Habib bidding you farewell from the Edgedwellers Cafe. Stay safe and much love.